Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer podcast. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today we are going to be talking about the Army of the Dead, the Oathbreakers, the Dead Men of Dunharrow, if you will. I apologize if you hear some papers crinkling because I have my much scribbled upon copy of Return of the King here and uh, some notes that I jotted down in a notebook. So, Without further ado, let's get right into it. Who are the dead men of Dunharrow? Well, first, we have to go all the way back to the Second Age, and we talk about the men of Middle-earth that were not Numenorean. These were men of the White Mountains who shared a common ancestor with the Dunlandings, and this was during a period of time in the Second Age, which is referred to as the Dark Years, where essentially all if not all, the majority of the men of Middle-earth were living under the domination of Sauron during this time period. And the men of the White Mountains, particularly, uh, had worshipped him and built temples to him. Now, fast forward to Numenor's destruction, which obviously, you know, that's a story of itself. Can't get too much into that or this podcast is going to be too long. Um, Numenor gets destroyed. The faithful escape on some ships. Uh, Isildur and his brother Anarion end up in the south where they found the kingdom of Gondor. Sauron at this time, his body's been destroyed because he, even though caused the destruction of Numenor, wasn't aware that Iluvatar was going to sink the island. So his body was destroyed. So his spirit essentially escapes to Mordor to go lick its wounds. And he's very quiet during this period of time. So what happens is the faithful arrive in Middle-earth. Isildur and Inarion establish the realm of Gondor and quickly bring all of the the different local groups of men that were living there uh, under their rule. Now, there was an artifact of Numenor. One of the things that the faithful, the the faithful tried to save a lot of um, the culture and different um, items of importance from Numenor, like uh, one of them being the scepter of Anuminas. There was another one of those items that was called the Stone of Eric. Now, they took this item that they had rescued from sinking Numenor. It was a It was a large stone, about three to four meters in diameter, and they placed it on the earth on top of this hill in what became southern Gondor. Uh, And they called it the the Hill of Eric, and this became the the Stone of Eric. It was this monument that Isildur had set up to celebrate, basically proclaim a new kingdom in Middle-earth. The Stone of Eric was in the valley um, located directly beneath where the, the men of the White Mountains who uh, were living there and they had been worshipping Sauron were located. So, naturally, they came down. Sauron was, was like I said before, he was quiet during this period of time. So they submitted to Isildur and Anarion's rule. Um, they basically were essentially tributaries. And they pledged fealty and troops to you know whoever Gondor's enemies were. Things are going pretty well for a while. They're living under the protection of the Numenorean faithful. But then Sauron rises again, right? He has finished licking his wounds. He's become powerful again. And he's sending his armies out to attack Isildur and Anarion's forces, who are both 
um, essentially ruling as co-kings during this time period, with their father ruling as the high king in the northern kingdom of Arnor. So, Isildur calls on those who pledged fealty to him, one of those being the king of the men of the mountain. So Isildur goes to the stone of Eric, where, again, that's, that's the monument that they put in the ground, where the king of the men of the mountain had come down and pledged fealty to Isildur at that location. He goes to the stone of Eric and calls upon the men of the mountain, and they deny him. They were afraid of Sauron. Their people had worshipped him for a very long period of time. They were scared. They didn't want to go help, so they fled into the mountain halls. So Isildur cursed them, and he said to their king, who rejected his calls for help, he said this, Thou shalt be the last king, and if the West prove mightier than thy black master, this curse I lay upon thee and thy folk, to rest never until your oath is fulfilled. For this war will last through years uncounted, and you shall be summoned once again ere the end. And then they fled before the wrath of Isildur. And then it goes on to say, And they hid themselves in secret places in the mountains, and had no dealings with other men, but slowly dwindled in the barren hills, and the terror of the sleepless dead lies about the hill of Eric, and all places where that people lingered. So there you have it. They were called to war, they broke their oath, didn't show up, told Isildur to his face they weren't going to come, and he lays that curse on them. And then the events of the War of the Last Alliance take place. Isildur perishes on the road back to the north. Uh, Arnor and Gondor split in two kingdoms. Uh, Isildur's descendants rule in the north in Arnor, and Anarion's descendants rule in the south in Gondor. And from there, we go on. Now, I want to skip ahead here about, I'm going to ballpark it, so none of you dorks need to correct me, okay? Like, I know, like, I'm not, this is off the top of my head. So, I want to say it's about 2,000 years later. We are placed in the kingdom of Arnor, which has now been split apart. Um, Rudar and uh, Cardolan have both been destroyed. They've been taken by the Witch King, and Arthedain is the last of the three kingdoms um, that Arnor disintegrated into. And the king of Arthedain currently is um, Arafon, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. But anyway, he has a son, and one of his counselors, essentially, is a person named Malbeth the Seer. So this person apparently had the gift of foresight and was an advisor to the king. And he encouraged the king to name his son Arvadui, which in their language meant the last king. So this kid is essentially supposed to be the last king of Arthedane. And this person is also Aragorn's direct ancestor. It's really hard to do these podcasts because I have this like burning desire to give context for everything, but that's like impossible, you know, because there is just so much information. So regrettably, I'm just going to have to like, I can't give context for everything or else, you know, we'd be here for 10 hours. So just know that Malbeth during the days of Arvadui, the last king of Arthedain, uh, gave a prophecy 
for the reuniting of the two kingdoms uh, together. It was it, the prophecy was centered around this figure, which of course we know to be Aragorn, uh, who would bring the two kingdoms back together and, and restore the the Dunedain to their former glory. And this was the prophecy that Malbeth the seer gave for the person who would eventually become Aragorn. Oh, and a, a portion of this um, this little bit that I'm about to read is actually in the extended edition of The Return of the King, and it's quoted by Legolas, but in the book it's quoted by Aragorn. So here we go. Here's the prophecy. Over the land there lies a long shadow, westward reaching wings of darkness. The tower trembles to the tombs of kings doom approaches. The dead awaken, for the hour is come for the oath-breakers. At the stone of Eric they shall stand again, and hear there a horn in the hills ringing. Whose shall the horn be? Who shall call them from the grey twilight? The forgotten people, the heir of him to whom the oath they swore. From the north shall he come, need shall drive him. He shall pass the door to the paths of the dead. So there you go. There is the prophecy that Malbeth the seer delivered about a future man who would bring the Dunedain back to their former glory and reunite the kingdoms. Because that was something that Arvadui, the last king of Arthedane, was unable to do. All right. <clears throat> now, hopefully that was enough context to kind of like, get us in the right place to finally get into the story. Um, of course, it's not perfect. You know, there's there's just, there's so much information that you have to know to, like, fully understand the gravity of every situation. But now I'm going to jump to, you know, what's actually going on present day in this chapter, which is called The, the Parting of the Grey Company. All right, let's jump in. So, the gang, the... Um, Portions of the Fellowship that are Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and Merry. Pippin and Gandalf have departed at this point. This is right after the Battle of Helm's Deep. You know, everybody's kind of, um, they've enjoyed the victory, uh, but it's time to get it together and go stop the evil that's about to be at the walls of Minas Tirith in Gondor. But we're, we're still kind of in this period of, I don't want to say rest necessarily, you know, because they're they're getting ready to go off to war into Gondor. But um, Rohan is, is, is essentially, uh, King Theoden is getting his troops together post-victory at Helm's Deep to go fight the war that needs to be fought um, on the Pelennor Fields. Our members of the Fellowship are hanging out with King Theoden when all of a sudden they are approached by a mysterious group of riders. And this group of riders ends up being Halbarad, which is one of the Dunedain Rangers who served under Aragorn. And he's accompanied by 30 other members of the Dunedain, uh, along with Eladen and Elrohir. And they're the sons of Elrond. Um, we never got to meet them in the Peter Jackson films, uh, but they are two characters that are part of the books. Um, you know, I understand why Peter Jackson didn't include them. You could only include so much in the movies, but it would have been cool to see 
more of Elrond's sons as characters, especially since they had, you know, they, they had a, a presence and importance um, in the Return of the King, especially. So they come and they are sent by Galadriel, who she's aware of what's going on. She's aware Aragorn is going off to war. At this point, there is a need among the Rohirrim. Because they're preparing to go and and face this enemy that's going to be attacking Minas Tirith. But they are in desperate need for more troops. So, the sons of Elrond, along with members of Aragorn's former servants, because do you remember? Aragorn's not a king at this point. He's not king in the north, but he is the chieftain of the Dúnedain Rangers. And... Galadriel sends them forth to, you know, to go find Aragorn and Rohan. And this is the country that they're, they're looking for. They actually state that in the, in the books, you know, before, um, uh, before Theoden and Aragorn confirm the identity of this, this company of riders that is approaching them, um, you know, they yell out and uh, um, Halbered yells out. He says, we're looking for the country of Rohan. You know, we're looking for Aragorn. Um, they come to remind Aragorn of the prophecy of Malbeth, to remind Aragorn about the paths of the dead prophecy. This host of shadow people that are available to the heir of Isildur. You remember in the prophecy, it says, need shall drive him. The need that is driving Aragorn is they need more men. So this is the point where Aragorn makes the executive decision to depart from Eomer and Theoden and go to the paths of the dead and recruit this potential host that could be allies in this big fight that they have. Now, something to note here, Eladon and Elrohir come bearing a gift from Arwen in Rivendell. And it's this long thing that's kind of wrapped up. And when you're reading the book, it doesn't reveal to you what that gift is. However, when it's presented to Aragorn by the brothers, the sons of Elrond, Aragorn knows what it is, and he says that he knows what it is. And he asks, I believe it's Elro here, to hold on to it for the time being. And we'll find out what that is eventually. But in the meantime, we have Aragorn deciding to depart with what's become known now as the Grey Company, which is the Dúnedain Rangers who served under Aragorn when he was their chief, as uh, his title Strider, and the sons of Elrond, Eladon and Elrohir, and uh, Gimli and Legolas. So they leave Theoden, Eomer, and Merry behind. And obviously, you know, Theoden and Eomer, they, they don't understand. They try to argue with Aragorn, try to get him not to go. But eventually they just accept that, you know, he's made his decision. And they're like, all right, you know, you're going to go to the paths of the dead. Fine. And they depart. And as they're walking away, you know, I this wasn't in my plan um, to talk about this, but I came across it as I was reading, um, as I was rereading this chapter to kind of prepare for this podcast. And I wanted to point this out because this is another one of those real life themes that we find in Tolkien's Legendarium. Um, so Mary's walking away and he's with Theoden and Eomer 
and Aragorn looks down and he he says this as as he kind of sees them walking away with with the rest of uh, Theoden's guard and company. You know they they've they've realized that they can't convince Aragorn to stay with them, so they've resigned to just being like, all right, you know, enjoy yourself. You know, on the paths of the dead, we're gonna leave now. Um, and as they're walking away, Aragorn says this: "There go three that I love." And the smallest, not the least, he said. He knows not to what end he rides, yet if he knew, he still would go on. Talking about Mary. And then Halbaran, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Halbaran, he says, A little people, but of great worth are the Shire folk, said Halbaran. Little do they know of our long labor for the safekeeping of their borders. And yet, I grudge it not. So right there, we see that it it was... You know, we have the hobbits who are arrogant at times. They really just want to shut out the outside world. And they think that in the Shire, that's just kind of... That's the best way to live. And they almost take pride in their ignorance of the outside world and in their peace of the existence that they lived in. And to Tolkien, you know, the Shire was the ideal way of life. He had modeled that off of the Western Midlands of of England, the place that he felt most home, the people that he had the most camaraderie with. That's who he modeled hobbits after. So, you know, like that one, that great line, you know, when you're watching The Fellowship of the Ring, when Bilbo said there's, uh, I don't want to butcher the quote, but it's something along the lines of, you know, there's no, there's no shame in a a simple life. You know, this, this simple life that the hobbits all love living and are very proud of, they don't even realize that it's bought by the blood of the rugged Dunedain soldiers who are protecting them. And that is a theme that rings true in the world that we live in. Your comfort, your peace your ability to not have to worry about the the potential cruelty of human existence on a regular basis not everyone of course some people are are living in really rough situations but but generally in in the west we live a life that is very free of the thought of potential war you know we don't live in in ukraine we're not living in Syria. You know, uh, the comfort of your life is bought by the blood of men from the past who patrolled the borders, who with their blood, sweat, and tears created the situation that you now enjoy. And the hobbits who believe that, like, this little area that they lived and, you know, their way of living was the best way of living and we don't have to worry about the silliness that goes on in the world outside of our borders the only re they had the privilege to live that way because they were being protected by the dunedain rangers so i think that that's like that's a point i really wanted to harp on because i came across it i was like wow you know that's that is so very much rings true to the reality of the world that we live in and get to enjoy but anyway, so I'll get back to the story. But I really wanted to touch on that because I think it was a really powerful quote in this book. Another important thing to note here, um, you know, if you need question about the incentive that is pushing Aragorn into this terrifying mission to go recruit this undead army, 
um, you know, he's essentially explaining to Gimli part of this chapter, his logic behind why he's doing this. Um, there was an earlier portion of the book where Aragorn kind of goes off and what he was doing while he goes off was the Palantir. He, he was using the Palantir that was taken from Saruman after the fall of Isengard. Aragorn was looking into it. We get this scene um, during a different time. It actually happens in the Peter Jackson films after the Battle of Pelennor Fields, but in the book it happens before. And it's actually, Aragorn handles it with much more finesse and, and confidence than, you know, he in the books than he does in the movies. Aragorn explains to Gimli that he looks into the Palantir and he sees not only this army that is approaching Minas Tirith from Mordor, but there are also uh, reinforcements of evil men from Umbar and Harad in the south who are approaching in uh, Corsair ships. And he sees this and he's like, man, you know, like just even more of a reason for us to need to find more unconventional ways to fight this enemy because there there are just too many villains attacking from all sides we don't have the resources to beat this enemy we need to do something unconventional here or we're going to lose this battle the city of Minas Tirith is going to be lost so in this chapter the passing of the Grey Company he kind of explains this logic to Gimli and talks about what happened when he looked into the Palantir he he sees you know what's going on where these resources are um, resources reinforcements are coming from But what he also has to do when he looks into the Palantir is he has to wrestle control of it, essentially, from Sauron. He has to master it because Sauron has a Palantir of his own that he got when Minas Ithil fell. The Ithil stone was there. That's another thing that's never revealed in the um, Peter Jackson movies. You know, every time somebody looks into the Palantir, they see Sauron. And in the Peter Jackson movies, they never explain how. Uh, Well, the reason why everyone sees Sauron when they look into the Palantir is because Sauron has a Palantir of his own. He has the Ithil Stone, and he is constantly using it. That's what he used to corrupt the mind of Saruman, who was already basically corrupted. But, you know, Sauron used the Ithil Stone to push him over the edge even further. But now Aragorn is in possession of it, and he's using it intentionally to reveal himself to Sauron, who is concerned about a potential heir to Isildur at this point, but isn't 100% sure whether one actually exists with a real legitimate claimant or not. Uh, But Aragorn in this moment, like he does in the movies, he reveals himself, and he reveals the sword. He reveals Elendil's sword. Um, reforged to kind of get in Sauron's head a little bit. And he successfully and confidently does this in the books, which, you know, is the difference from the movie where, if you recall in the movie, it's in the extended edition. Aragorn looks into the Palantir and reveals himself to Sauron, but then Sauron kind of gets in his head a little bit and shows him, like, a vision of uh, Arwen dead. Uh, and then he drops that piece of jewelry that she gave him. Um, so that that's very much different you know, than what happens in the books. Aragorn in the books, if you haven't noticed by now, is way more confident than he is in the movies. So again, him using the stone was kind of his attempt to get into Sauron's head. And then he justifies that logic to Gimli with the quote. He says, the hasty stroke goes oft astray. 
So he's trying to get Sauron to make a move. He's trying to make Sauron nervous. So so he jumps and makes a hasty stroke, which we'll see he does. But anyway, moving on. So Aragorn and the Grey Company, which again is Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas, the Sons of Elrond, and around 30 Dúnedain Rangers. Obviously in the movies, it's just the three of them. Uh, there was actually way more. But anyway, they depart to go to the Paths of the Dead. Now, I'm going to skip the multiple paragraphs we have of Eowyn complaining about how upset she is that Aragorn's leaving. Because, obviously, none of us want to hear that. So, just kidding. It's actually great dialogue. Um, it's beautifully written. If you haven't read this chapter, you really should. I, I just don't really feel like getting to that because I want to I wanna start moving forward here. I don't want to spend too much time on off-topic stuff. So I'm going to move forward a little bit. And, um, you know, Aragorn, the Grey Company, they've left. Merry, Eomer, Eowyn, Theoden. They're sitting around, um, you know, they're having a feast. It's it's a pre-war meal, you know, and discussion. And the attitude is pretty somber. You know, Theoden asked Mary to um, come over and and tell him some tales, and it, it's just the mood, the vibes are off. You know, like nobody has any fun tales to tell. But what Mary finally does is he musters up the question about the paths of the dead because he's sick of hearing about it. He wants to know what it is. So everybody gets all awkward and quiet. You know, and Theoden decides to go into some detail about the lore behind the paths of the dead, at least from the view of the people of Rohan and their histories regarding this odd place at their southern border. So Theoden begins the story, right? So Rohan was founded by Earl the Young, and I can't, again, can't get too into this because there's just <laughs> there's just way too much detail to get lost in. Uh, but I'll, I'll say this story about the um, army of the dead according uh, fr- from the view of the people of rohan um goes back to the ruling of the or the rule sorry of the second king of rohan this uh, gentleman named brego who was the son of earl the young who was the founder essentially of rohan after he was uh, gifted the land by the um steward of gundor who granted it to him for his help against uh, what i believe is the wayne riders um but anyway <clears throat> so it's it's the rule of Brego, and his son is named Baldor, and Baldor is the prince of Rohan, and these are Theoden's ancestors. Now, Brego and his son Baldor, the prince, were surveying all of the lands that were given to Earl the Young. They were surveying all of their borders to kind of try and find areas that could be used to fortify in time of need. They were essentially exploring the land that belonged to them. And they reached this area uh, of Dunharrow, which they referred to as the door of the Dwimmerberg. And there was stairs that were already there. There were these kind of ruined old stairs, but, but still there, still very much there. So they climbed to the top of these stairs. It was called the, the Stair of the Hold. And this is, again, they have no idea what they're walking into. They're just kind of exploring the king and his son. And they reach this dark door. It's just pitch black on the inside. And when they go to enter it, 
this man shouts out to them. There was this hunched over character. Oh, I just almost knocked my mic over. Hunched over character that they actually thought was a statue. This man, it turned out to be a man, old man, decrepit, shouts out to them. And he says this. The way is shut. Oh, yeah. You thought I wasn't going to do the voice? I'm doing the voice. Then they halted and looked at him and saw that he lived still. Again, because they didn't, they didn't think that this was a living person. But he did not look at them. The way is shut, his voice said again. It was made by those who are dead. And the dead keep it. Until the time comes... The way is shut. Then Baldor says, the prince, And when will that time be? But no answer did he ever get, for the old man died in that hour and fell upon his face, and no other tidings of the ancient dwellers in the mountains have our folk ever learned. Now this is Theoden talking. Have our folk ever learned. Yet maybe at last the time foretold has come, and Aragorn may pass. So later on, the king, Brego, is throwing a party because he had just built this palace, which he's called Meduseld. And, you know, for those of you who have seen the movies, that is the building that Theoden's um, throne sits in. So Brego has just built this palace and he's celebrating its construction. And this is sometime after their experience with the old man. They didn't end up going through the door. Um... Everybody starts getting lit. It's a crazy party. And then amid the celebration, Baldor stands up and he empties his horn. So that's like, you know, you're drinking out of a horn. So clearly there was drinking involved. He was probably hammered. He says that he's going to go back and he's going to go through that door that that old man said they couldn't go through, that they were creeped out by. And he not only says that he's going to do it, but he vows to go do it. He makes a promise in front of everybody at this party to go do that. And he departs for the door, this prince of Rohan. And he's never seen again. And now we revert back to the Grey Company. They're in the mountain pass. They have traversed this creepy, narrow way between the dense rocks of Dunharrow to reach the dark door. And this is Aragorn and the Grey Company. And and what's interesting about this, um, well, first, before I get into that, I'll, I'll describe the scene a little bit. So Aragorn finds the opening in the mountain rock. They get to the door, and there's all these, like, crazy inscriptions all over the door. I thought that in the Peter Jackson movies, they actually did a great job, you know, depicting that door. They got the Eye of Sauron on it. It's very clear that, you know, the people who live there worshipped and were afraid of Sauron. So they get to the door. The horses don't want to go forward. They basically have to, you know, the the rangers have to dismount from their horses and, and kind of yank them, you know, by the bit to get in there. The door is just, you can't see inside at all. It's like looking into night. And then the story shifts. And I think that this is funny. You know, Tolkien intentionally, I believe, wrote it this way because it's 
it switches to the view of Gimli, and we see this completely unfold from his point of view, which is funny because he's a dwarf, and dwarfs, dwarves, sorry, <laughs> Tolkien would be mad at me, uh, dwarves spend all their time underground, you know, and, and that quote from the movies where Gimli says, an elf will go underground and a dwarf dare not, you know, like that actually, it says that in the books. Um, so it kind of just switches to Gimli's point of view. And that's how Tolkien uh, chooses to um, display this whole story, at least while they're underground. So I'm going to give you a few descriptions because I, I don't want to just kind of pass over it like I've been passing over everything else because this is this is the meat of the story here. So I'm going to be taking a lot of quotes directly from the book for the next like 10 minutes. So they enter in to the door. And it's pitch black. And again, we're seeing this from Gimli's perspective. He could see nothing but the dim flame of the torches. But if the company halted, there seemed an endless whisper of voices all about them. A murmur of words in no tongue that he had ever heard before. So, I mean, that's pretty creepy. You know, they go in, they're in this pitch black, and every time there ceases to be any noise, you know, because there's there's a lot of them. So as they're marching along, they're making a lot of noise on these rocks. Whenever they stop, there's just a mass of whispers and voices all around them, reading on. All the paths behind them were thronged by an unseen host that followed in the dark. So the company can feel, you know, they hear the voices and they can't see anything because it's pitch black, but they can feel this, there's like a, a presence with them, like a, and not just a presence, but, you know, presence plural, like there is a, a host of something that is following them. It says, time unreckoned past. So, you know, they're, they're in here for they, they don't even know how much time has gone on because they, they can't see anything. All Gimli is seeing in this moment is, is the flicker of the lights of the torches that are being carried by a couple of the, the company that's with them. And, you know, it describes Gimli saying the dread was so heavy on him that he could hardly walk. And some moments later, they finally reach an opening in this black cavern. Now, they, they know that because, so, as they're walking, they're kind of going along this hallway, and they're able to, you know, touch the walls, and they finally reach a point where there's just, there's just an opening. You know, there's no walls to their left or their right. They're, they're in some kind of great hall that's, that's opened up about them in this, in this blackness, and it's in this moment that there is a glitter that reflects one of the lights of the torches. Gimli's terrified. He doesn't want to go near whatever the glitter is. But Aragorn, obviously, he immediately runs over. He hands his torch to, I believe it's it's Elrohir. If not, it's the other, <laughs> the other son of Elrond. There's a son of Elrond standing next to him. He hands him his torch. And they're staring at what has caused this reflection of light that they've noticed. And they look, and on the ground, they see the bones of a mighty man adorned in a magnificent array. He, so it says, it describes him as, as being adorned with 
gold and garnets. And they get over and they, they find this this skeleton, essentially, in this regal armor that is dead before a closed door. Uh, a closed door of stone. And apparently, you know, Aragorn surmises that this adorned once mighty man was clawing at this door with his fingers, trying to get out of this large room that he found himself entrapped in. And uh, it, it says that his fingers were like clawing at the at the crack in this door and his sword lay uh, lay next to him just broken. Like he had been, you know, trying to use his sword to cut the wall that was blocking him from escaping this room that he found himself entrapped in. And it says, Aragorn did not touch him, but after gazing silently for a while, he rose and sighed. Hither shall the flowers of Symbolman, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, come never unto world's end, he murmured. Nine mounds and seven there are now, green with grass, and through all the long years he has lain at the door that he could not unlock. Whither does it lead? Why would he pass? None shall ever know. And, you know, for those of you who might not know, Simpleman, and again, I'm, I'm probably butchering, butchering that uh, enunciation there, um, but if you watch the two towers, Theoden is holding that white flower um, while staring at his son's uh, grave mourning the death of his son holding that white flower. Symbolman is the flower that sprouted on the graves of the kings and princes of Rohan. So Aragorn has surmised very correctly that this is actually Baldor, the disappeared prince of Rohan. He, they've uncovered his body. He made that vow drunkenly at the party and went off to go explore the dark door and found himself lost in the dark caverns on the inside and died in his despair, clawing at a door that was locked to him, probably haunted by all of the entities that were filled in this cavern. Aragorn goes on to say, uh, going back for a second, just so you have context, when he says, why would he pass? None shall ever know. But then he goes on to say, for that is not my errand. And this he yells out, like, into the caverns behind them. For that is not my errand, he cried, turning back and speaking to the whispering darkness behind. Keep your hordes and your secrets hidden in the accursed years. He's talking about the, the dark years where they spent time worshipping Sauron. Like, Aragorn is not there to figure out, you know, the secrets of this underground cavern. He's there to recruit these people who owe him allegiance. He says, in the accursed years, speed only we ask. Let us pass and then come. I summon you to the stone of Eric. So that's him identifying himself, saying like, hey, you know, you're going to meet me out where you made your original oath and you're going to fulfill that oath. Now it says, there was no answer unless it were an utter silence more dreadful than the whispers before. So the whispers cease after Aragorn says this. And then it says that a cold, chill blast from behind them, from this presence that they could feel behind them, hits all of them and blows all of the torches out. So they're, now they're in complete darkness. 
So the company moves on, just continuing to walk into the darkness where they can. And they go on for a long while until eventually they reach a point. And again, this is told through Gimli's perspective. It says, he stumbled on, talking about Gimli, until he was crawling like a beast on the ground and felt that he could endure no more. He must either find an ending and escape or run back in madness to meet the following fear. So most of them are at a point where essentially they're just so desperate to get out of this like darkness, this dark cave, this cavern that they feel like they're going crazy. And then in that moment, after that quote in the next paragraph, they finally reach an end. They hear water. They get to an opening on the other side of this underground mountain pass. And the opening opens up and, and they can see outside. Finally, they, ha- they have fresh air after walking through this pitch darkness. I, b- I believe it's around the evening of the day. And the company finally gets out on the other side and decide to descend down into the valley to get to the Stone of Eric. And it's in this moment that Legolas says, as they're descending down from the mountain, The dead are following said Legolas. I see shapes of men and of horses and pale banners like shreds of cloud and spears like winter thickets on a misty night. The dead are following. So in this moment, this host, this presence that they felt the entire time going through this underground cavern is now visible behind them and is descending with them down into the valley, following them to the stone of Eric. Now, The book talks about there's actually a village down at the bottom, kind of in the valley that where there's villagers living there and they can see this great host following and people are screaming. They're saying the king of the dead, the king of the dead is come upon us and they flee. So the company descends down into the valley and they arrive at a, a village that's essentially abandoned because all these people have fled the great host that's approaching them. Nevertheless, they press on to keep going to the Stone of Eric, which at this point is very near. You know, if you didn't get it in the beginning, I'm reiterating it now. This, the Stone of Eric is where the King of the Dead, the last king that Isildur placed the curse on, the Stone of Eric is where he swore his fealty. So that's that's why they're all trying to get to there at this point, because that is where Aragorn is going to force them to fulfill their oath. So they approach the Stone of Eric. They get to the stone and then they halt. The whole company stops with this host of phantoms following them. They turn around and face the host. And Aragorn is given a horn by Elrohir. And Aragorn blows into this silver horn. And it seems that there is a response of horns coming from the host. And I'm going to read here from the book. To those that stood near that had heard a sound of answering horns, as if it was an echo in deep caves far away. So Aragorn blows into the horn, and this host of phantoms responds to him with horns of their own. And then Aragorn dismounts his horse, and standing at the stone, he cries in a loud voice, Oathbreakers, why have ye come? And a voice was heard out of the night that answered him, as if from far away. To fulfill our oath and have peace. 
I did it. Did the voice. There you go. Then Aragorn responds, The hour is come at last. Now I go to Pelargir upon Anduin, and ye shall come after me. And when all this land is clean of the servants of Sauron, I will hold the oath fulfilled, and ye shall have peace and depart forever. For I am Elisar, Isildur's heir of Gondor. So Aragorn promises this host in this moment that if they help him, he will let them go free. And in this moment also, uh, Elro here, uh, I believe it is, um, might be mistaken, it might have been Eladon, but whoever was, was holding the gift that I had mentioned earlier that Arwen had uh, personally fashioned for Aragorn to be delivered to him, that is unwrapped. And what is revealed is the banner of the king of Gondor. So they unwrap this gift in this, after Aragorn makes this explanation, and the flag gets unfurled, and you see that it is a black banner with, I mean, it doesn't describe it this way because in the book it says it was, the pattern on the banner was, was too dark because it was dark outside to tell what it was, but, but we know that this is the banner of the king of Gondor. So Aragorn is revealing himself as the true heir. He has the black banner with the white tree in the foreground and the seven stars. They end up camping there for the night after this host agrees to go with them. And then they depart the next day to go to Pelargir to fight these reinforcements that are coming from Umbar and Harad, who are definitely poised to destroy the city unless they do something about it. Now, fast forward, we have Gimli, Legolas, Merry, and Pippin. And this is actually multiple chapters later. After the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Because we don't know much until this moment. What happened after Aragorn declares himself and commands the army of the dead to fulfill their oath. We know they depart. And we know kind of the direction they were going in. Um, but we don't really know the events after this because the chapter ends. Picking up after the Battle of Pelennor. Mary and Pippin are inquiring to Gimli and Legolas, like, hey, you know, what happened? Like, what, what happened on, on your journey after you broke off and, and took the paths of the dead? And this is what Legolas says. I will tell you enough for your peace, for I felt not the horror, and I feared not the shadows of men, powerless and frail, as I deemed them. Then he goes on to describe how some of them were riding on horseback, some of this... this undead host was riding on horseback uh some of them were dismounted and and just running but all at a great speed and they would have overtaken the party if aragorn had not commanded them to stay behind and it's interesting in this moment legolas says to mary and pippin he says that he thought even the shades of men are obedient to his will talking about aragorn so aragorn is just tr like triumphant in this moment you know he is at the head of this host of you know wraiths that are loyal to him and their goal here remember is to get to pelargir to stop the invasion of here i'll, I'll take a second to explain for people who don't have context so pelargir is a coastal city at the mouth of a river 
that leads up to where Minas Tirith is. So Aragorn is currently leading the Grey Company and the Great Host to get to Pelargir to stop the reinforcements of evil men from the south, who, which is made up of the Corsairs of Umbar, who are actually, uh, they have... They have Numenorean ancestry there. The um, the controllers of, of Umbar for... It went back and forth between Gondor and the evil men, but, um, you know, they were the black Numenoreans. They were the men of Numenor who were, you know, the king's men. They were, they were evil. They wanted to... Um, their goal was to wrestle eternal life, you know, from, from the Valar. So that's their ancestry. So these are formidable warriors who are coming to reinforce the orcs that are attacking Minas Tirith. And Aragorn's goal in this moment is not to get to Minas Tirith like it is in the movies. That's not where they arrive at. Their goal is to get to this coastal city of Pelargir to stop the in, this fleet invasion coming up from the south, which intends to go up the river to reinforce the army that is currently at the gates of Minas Tirith. So their goal is to get to Pelargir, and, and that's where they go in the books. So... And on their way to Pelargir, they pass through a land called Lamedon. And the lord of Lamedon actually joins in with Aragorn's host. So now it's Aragorn, the Grey Company, Gimli, Legolas, the lord of Lamedon, and his army of, uh, you know, muster levies that he has, and the army of the dead. So they join with, with more men. There's more men who are joining in with this terrifying conglomeration. And they finally arrive at Pelargir. And I want to stop and analyze this quote that comes from Legolas, which I think is super interesting. I came across this, again, as I was rereading the chapter so I could do this podcast. Legolas says, this is um, kind of, you know, when they get to the coast. Legolas says, Then I thought in my heart that we drew near to the sea, for wide was the water in the darkness, and seabirds innumerable cried on its shores. Alas, for the wailing of the gulls, did not the lady tell me to beware of them? And now I cannot forget them. So it's an interesting moment where Legolas, who is from the woodland realm, very far inland, now finds himself not being able to stop thinking about the sea. Like he saw the ocean and he can't stop thinking about it now. He can't stop thinking about the gulls that that wouldn't stop making noises. This is something that is inherent in all of the Elvish people, this call to the sea. And what's the call to the sea? It's, It's the call to go west. It's the call to go to the undying land, which is their fate. That's where they're supposed to go. To, um, to, to wait the fate of Arda and the end of the world and the last battle. So Legolas feels this call that is awoken in him in this moment. And I wanted to make a point about that because, you know, that's super interesting. It, it gives us a view into the elven psyche and what happens when they see the ocean. You know, they feel that call to go west and into Valinor. Now, they finally arrive at the city of Pelargir, where this great host of reinforcements of evil men from the south are getting together to sail up the river so they can get to Minas Tirith to reinforce Sauron's army. They arrive, there's 50 great ships from Umbar that they see. Now, remember, like, these aren't... I remember 
In the Peter Jackson films, you're watching and kind of the impression that you get of the Corsairs of Umbar is that they're like a bunch of dirty pirates. Like, I remember um, the way it was depicted, Peter Jackson is actually one of them. He's he's the one that gets shot by the, uh, you know, when Aragorn goes, fire a warning shot past the boson's ear. And Gimli gives a little poke at Legolas's bow and it swerves and it hits one of the pirates and that pirate actually happens to be Peter Jackson. Um, you know, these guys are depicted at like the very dirty and disheveled looking, you know, they, they don't look super uh, regal at all. And I think that that's the wrong impression. You know, these, these weren't just pirates. These were, like I said before, men who have a Numenorean descendants. These were the black Numenorians, the evil men from the south. And yes, of course, by this point, they had been so intermingled with the men of Harad that, you know, maybe they would have been a little bit unrecognizable, but they certainly would have been more formidable than what they were presented, I think, in in the films. So just a good point to make there. And it says that when Aragorn, the Grey Company, and these, uh, the Lord of Lamedon, and the, um, levies that he had brought with him, when they arrive, it says that the men of Harad and the Corsairs laughed at them. So that was portrayed accurately in the Peter Jackson movies. And then in this moment, Aragorn halted and cried with a great voice, Now come, by the black stone I call you. And suddenly the shadow host that had hung back at the last came up like a gray tide, sweeping all the way before it. Faint cries, and um, this is this is Gimli talking. Faint cries I heard, and dim horns blowing, and a murmur as of countless far voices. It was like the echo of some forgotten battle in the dark years long ago. Pale swords were drawn, but... I know not whether their blades would still bite, for the dead needed no longer any weapon but fear. None would withstand them. And it says that the mariners were filled with a madness of terror and leaped overboard, save the slaves chained to the oars. And then it says all were drowned or were flying south in the hope to find their own lands upon foot. Strange and wonderful, I thought it, that the designs of Mordor should be overthrown by such wraiths of fear and darkness. With its own weapons, was it worsted? And Legolas responds, Strange indeed. In that hour I looked on Aragorn and thought how great and terrible a lord he might have become in the strength of his own will had he taken the ring to himself. Not for naught does Mordor fear him, but nobler is his spirit than the understanding of Sauron. For is he not of the children of Luthien? Never shall that line fail though the years may lengthen beyond count. Now that's a reference to the story from the Silmarillion, as you all should know, uh, of Baron and Luthien, Aragorn's ancestors. So they win the battle. Um, The forces of Harad and Umbar are either drowned or running on foot back to their home countries. And it says that the army of the dead withdrew from the ships after they were all taken by the Grey Company to the shore. And they stood on the shore and watched Aragorn. 
And Aragorn stops and looks at them, and in a loud voice, he cries, Hear now the words of the heir of Isildur. Your oath is fulfilled. Go back and trouble not the valleys ever again. Depart and be at rest. And then it goes on to say, And thereupon the king of the dead stood out before the host and broke his spear and cast it down. Then he bowed low and turned away, and swiftly the whole gray host drew on and vanished like a mist that is driven back by a sudden wind. And it seemed to me that I awoke from a dream. And that's Gimli talking. Remember, this is something that is all taking place at Pilargir, not Minas Tirith. So the army of the dead is gone before Aragorn even gets there. So that's like a huge difference between the books and the Peter Jackson films. You know, the the army of the dead was gone at Pilargir. They never even joined them on the ships for their journey to Minas Tirith. And after this took place, local groups of people started to join in with Aragorn after they witnessed this victory. So you have Aragorn, he's with the Lord of of Lamedon, which is a a fief of Gondor. And people from there are joining. He goes and he, the book says that he frees all of the slaves that were running the Corsair ships. So those people join with him. Local people who live in the area who were, you know, hiding uh, from the onslaught, they join in with him. So at this point, Aragorn has collected a good number of living reinforcements. Uh, The army of the dead is gone. You know, to him, they have fulfilled their oath and they've disappeared. So that's what Aragorn brings to the table at the, you know, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Not this army of the dead, like that what takes place in the Peter Jackson films. What lessons do we learn from this story? Something that's important to note is that in Tolkien's universe, oaths have power. Your word has power. You know, this is a consistent theme across the entire existence of the legendarium like if you go back to the the oath of feanor if you've read the silmarillion you know the sons of feanor who took that oath to retrieve the silmarils back from morgoth and all of the death destruction and suffering that was wrought from those who took those oaths like there is a governance and a and an authority that oath taking has And we see this as a theme throughout the entire span of the story of the dead men of Dunharrow. So you have the dead men of Dunharrow who they make their oath to Isildur and they break it. And they're punished for it with suffering until they fulfill their oath. They won't have, their souls won't have rest until they fulfill that oath. And then while that's going on, you have Baldur. The Prince of Rohan, Baldor the Hapless, who who makes his vow to all of those who will listen within the party that he will go and he will explore the paths of the dead. What happens to him because of his vow? And then you have Aragorn, who makes a vow that he will let this army be free, let this army rest when they have fulfilled the terms of their service, which they do, and Aragorn lets them go. The lessons that ring true through here are are 
We need to make an effort to keep our word. Our word means something. It's not something that you can approach casually. So honor your word, ladies and gentlemen. Don't make promises that you can't keep. Now, I'm going to jump to my opinion on a debate that is very hot on this topic and was one of the inspirations for why I wanted to do this as a whole. So there's some people who feel that, you know, and, and usually they're people who have just watched the movies and they're like, eh, I just think it's a plot hole. Like, why didn't Aragorn just use the army of a dead attack Sauron? Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. <clears throat> I'm of the opinion, first of all, that even if the army of the dead could kill people, it still wouldn't bother me. Um, you know, because who cares? Like, it's it's not a plot hole. It's Aragorn is fulfilling his promise. Imagine if this entire story, which is predicated on the importance of keeping your word, ended with Aragorn going, you know what? Actually, instead of keeping my word to you, then I'm going to let you be at rest. I've decided that I want to keep you around for a while. No, obviously that wasn't going to happen. He was going to keep his word because the story is about keeping your word. However, for the people who think it's a plot hole that this army that Aragorn has control over, you know, could have just went into Mordor and mopped up the floor with all the orcs, that wouldn't have happened. And here's why. At least to me, this is my opinion. I don't believe that this army had the capability to just sweep other armies. I don't think that they were killing people in the way that is depicted in the Peter Jackson movies. And here's my evidence for that. One, you go to Legolas's description of this army of the dead. He says, I will tell you enough for your peace. For I felt not the horror, and I feared not the shadows of men, powerless and frail as I deemed them. So that's Legolas. Legolas isn't even scared of this host. He's just seeing them as powerless and frail. So that's an indicator right there that, like, maybe this army of the dead really isn't bringing much to the table. Moving on, we go to... A quote from Gimli, which I'm trying to find. Pale swords were drawn, but I know not whether their blades would still bite, for the dead needed no longer any weapon but fear. None would withstand them. So, right there you have Tolkien intentionally inserting a line, like, hey, guys, they're not really killing anybody. The the army of Harad and Umbar... These, these men are just fleeing, you know, because they see this army of phantoms coming at them. Like, they're running away. And then it says, goes on, all were drowned. Talking about the, the corsairs of Umbar and, and the Haradrim. All were drowned or were flying south in the hope to find their own lands upon foot. It doesn't say all were drowned, some were slain. It says all were drowned or were flying south all right there i believe that tolkien intentionally wrote it this way to avoid that plot hole of like oh they could have just used this army to clean out mordor no they couldn't because this army couldn't kill people in that way their power was fear so that's something that i kind of wanted to double down on and i hope i you know 
delivered that in a strong way. But those quotes that I built up right there, I think that's a strong argument for the fact that this army of the dead didn't really have the ability to physically kill anybody. Their power was fear. All right. I think that about wraps it up. Thank you so much for joining me, folks. This is, again, the Middle Earth Mixer podcast. Feel free to subscribe. Can't believe I'm saying that now. Um, But, yeah, thank you for joining me.